morning. Well, good morning, everyone. It is a real joy to uh, be together in worship, and it is a real joy for me to uh, preach God's Word today, and I want to express thanks to the elders for uh, entrusting me with this uh, task of uh, preaching uh, today. It truly is uh, an honor. Uh, I'm glad to be here, and uh, I know there are, are a few people around this morning that would not normally be here, uh, and so uh, people who are quite special in my life and have been a source of uh, blessing to me, my own family, of course, my parents, and former parishioners and current friends, and so it's uh, good to welcome you and for us all to be together here. Uh, this morning. Before we dive into the scripture, I think it would be appropriate for me to uh, say a very brief word about Mile One Mission. You would expect that, wouldn't you? Uh, I mean, wouldn't that be normal for me to have a brief word about Mile One Mission? Just to briefly update you, you know, a lot of behind-the-scenes work is ongoing with, with Mile One Mission. And for those of you who are new or maybe visiting, Mile One Mission is a, a wonderful mission of this church, a church-planting initiative uh, where the, the elders of this church have a dream and a vision to plant gospel churches here uh, in St. John's, the metro area, and by God's grace around Newfoundland and Labrador. And so a lot of work is happening behind the scenes as we uh, try to raise the profile of Mile One Mission and develop uh, material and develop training programs and increase our visibility on social social media channels, and as we get ready for conferences and that, those types of things, we have a website now that's gone live. You can check it out at mileonemission.ca, and so there are lots of exciting things ongoing, and uh, we just invite you to pray and support this uh, wonderful initiative of this, your church. You know, at the core of Mile One Mission is a desire to see people saved and local churches established. Established. And so we invite you to pray and to give. And one of the big things you can pray about right now uh, is for continued support, but also for God to raise up planters and gospel workers who will come and join us in this uh, very exciting and challenging uh, endeavor. So let's, let's get to the word this morning. One of the things that I'm thankful for here at Calvary is the approach to the Scriptures, and specifically the preaching of the Word. As an aside, I'm also thankful right now that the preaching is always rather long, because I'm just going to fit right in, all right? And, and so it, it's, it's, my, it's my personal conviction that systematic expository preaching is the method that is most needed in local churches. Expository preaching is preaching that is based in the text. It's an approach grounded in a careful explanation of a scripture passage. Now that's not to say that other preaching methods are not useful from time to time, but I, I really believe that expository preaching is the method that holds the best potential for the spiritual formation of a congregation over time. Now, a benefit for preachers who practice this systematic approach is that you, you preach what the text gives you. 
And so you're, you're never, you know, looking, searching for something to preach. You always know what your next sermon is going to be. Well, of course, that's not the case for me this morning because I'm not preaching on a, on a regular basis. The challenge is the selection of a passage of Scripture. And so I'm inviting you into the seventh chapter of Hebrews. Now, admittedly, Hebrews may not be the best choice for a one-off sermon. You know, Hebrews is one of those books that would really benefit from a, a systematic uh, approach, a section-by-section -section approach where you get to, you know, lay a foundation for and build upon the many important uh, and sometimes complex themes uh, that Hebrews presents. So by jumping to chapter 7, we do miss out on some very important groundwork, but I do think we can still do this passage justice. And I, I wanted to bring you here today because this particular passage really impacted me personally in recent weeks in a very significant way. So I'm bringing you to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23, and we're going to read into verse 1 of chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Because he continues forever. And consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friends, that's good news. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like the, those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he, he did this once for all when, men, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Do you have a treasured possession? You know, something that you, you really, really treasure. Something you, you love to talk about. Uh, maybe it's something that you, um, you give some extra uh, special care for. Maybe it's something that's stored in a special place and only comes out for special occasions. Maybe it's something you don't like others even touching. You, you really enjoy this so much. Well, at the, heart, at the heart of this scripture passage is a treasure. It's something or perhaps someone of surpassing worth. And let me say right from the beginning, 
that the greatest treasure this passage of Scripture is pointing to is the person of Jesus. The one that we've been singing about today and worshiping and praying to. He's the treasure. And knowing Jesus is of supreme value. Knowing Jesus is the greatest treasure in life. And we sometimes struggle with this. You know, finding our greatest joy and hope and satisfaction in Jesus and Him alone. For, for here's what we often do, and I've heard this so many times over my years of pastoral ministry, and it, it often goes something like this. Well, I tried Jesus, but, but things in my life didn't change. Or I tried Jesus, but, but this didn't get any better. This didn't change. This didn't happen. I, I, I tried Jesus, but I didn't get the results that I expected. I, w- I would suggest to us that that reflects uh, a deficiency in our theology. Because the fact is that Jesus is not a means to a greater end. He's the end. Jesus is not a connecting flight. He is the destination. And Jesus is not the path to finding treasure in life. He is really the treasure. Jesus is not the means to some sort of better life. He is the life. If you have come to saving faith in Jesus, you've found life. If you have entered into a relationship with Jesus, you have received by God's grace the greatest treasure you could ever receive in your life. If you've been saved through faith in Jesus, then that's enough. That's enough. And that's what this passage is pointing us towards. So let's back up and see then how this passage brings us to that point. First thing I want to point out is uh, that the writer is making a, a comparison. And of course, this is a larger theme of the book of Hebrews, but the, the specific comparison of our text, as, as you noted, is related to the priesthood. And to understand the comparison being made, just let me say a couple of very brief things about Hebrews in general. Very, I mean, very little is known really about the origin of the book. Many ancient manuscripts actually titled the book to the Hebrews. And so this book was most likely a letter. uh, And letters were a primary form of communication in the ancient world. And many of the New Testament books were originally written as letters to churches and to individuals. And so this letter was written to the Hebrews, and the tone of the letter implies that the letter is written to Christians, most likely a Jewish community that had converted to Christianity. The author is unknown, and I won't take any time to explore speculation regarding regarding authorship. So, so we have this apparent letter, most likely written to Jewish converts in the first century. And, and this, this is a good segue then back to, our, to the comparison that the scripture text is referencing, the, the Jewish priesthood. And, and the Jewish priesthood that is detailed at length in, in the Old Testament, at the center 
of Jewish life and faith was the priesthood. It was established very early in their history as a people and became the central focus of formal worship in Israel. And the position of high priest was the preeminent chief uh, religious official of Judaism. High priests oversaw the ritual worship of God, and they were looked to as the mediator between God and the people, the main representative between God and the nation of Israel. More specifically, the high priest superintended the sacrificial system, which was central to Jewish faith. And this system was was instituted by God as a means of dealing with the sins of the people. And so to help us understand this ancient sacrificial system directed by the priesthood, I think it's important to to locate this within the, the overarching narrative of the Bible. God's creation, the rebellion and fall of humanity, and God's plan of redemption. The question is, how does God deal with rebellion? How does he deal with the sin of his people? For God's chosen people, a system of animal sacrifices was established to deal with sin. Repeated sacrifices. Daily. Weekly sacrifices. I'm glad I wasn't a pastor or a priest at that time in history. Repeated sacrifices. And there was also a special day, the Day of Atonement. An annual and graphic event, as as Al Mohler writes, that reminded the people that they were unable to perfectly obey the law and and desperately needed a priest to mediate on their behalf. And so, friends, it was, it was through the priesthood and, and this system of animal sacrifices that was the means of dealing with the sin of the people and, and that sought to mediate a right standing between the people and God. And it's important to understand that our text is pointing us to the fact that something was deficient in this system. At least, at least to us Christians now looking back through the lens of God's completed revelation. And the writer is telling his original readers that the old order could not bring worshipers to a state of perfection. And the repeated sacrifices daily, weekly, yearly served to remind people of their sin. And and what stood in the way of a clear conscience was the barrier of freshly accumulated sin. Nothing could atone for the guilty conscience of, of people for the sins they would commit right after the sacrifice. And this was an imperfect cleansing, cleaning that led to an imperfect conscience, a guilty conscience. Now, I, I think it should be pointed out that, that this system did serve its, its purpose. This old covenant, instituted by God, was always meant to be a shadow of something greater. It was a system crying out for a better way, 
crying out for fulfillment. It was a system instituted by God that served its purpose for its time. And so our text alludes to the fact that a defining mark of Judaism was a succession of of high priests, mediators. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. And so one priest would die, would move off the scene, another one was needed. It was always this succession of priests. The repeated sacrifices by a long line of priests all pointed to the insufficient nature of this entire system. The Jewish people always stood in need of a priest because the priesthood could not bring about perfection. And so as one priest died, another one was needed. There wasn't a priest in the history of God's people that could complete the work and close the book on the priesthood. The Old Testament priesthood and sacrificial system could not bring about what a perfectly holy God requires of humanity. And what's that? Sinless perfection. Perfect righteousness. Now, in the lead up, in the lead up to our passage, there's an interesting character mentioned, Melchizedek. Back in Hebrews chapter 7, uh, just earlier in verse 11, it says, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arrive after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Now again, this is where it would be quite helpful to be you know, working through these earlier chapters so we could be a little bit more familiar with some of this rather dense material. But the writer is saying that the insufficient nature of the Jewish priesthood pointed to the fact that there was need for a priest to arise like that of Melchizedek. Well, who is this guy? The whole book is about the need for something greater, for someone greater. And the writer, speaking to Jewish converts, uses Melchizedek to kind of strengthen his argument. And so because this is, is helpful, just briefly, uh, let's, let's look very briefly at who this guy was. Melchizedek is a rather uh, obscure figure of the Old Testament. In fact, there are just two specific passages in the Old Testament that refer to him. Here's what we know about him, and here's why it's significant as it relates to the priesthood of Jesus. Melchizedek was distinct from all other priests in that he was both a king and a priest. Now, we know from Genesis 14 that he was king of the region of Salem, but also priest of the high God. And this sets him apart from any other priest or king in Israel. Outside of Jesus and Melchizedek, there is no other scriptural reference to someone who was a king and a priest. Uh, Many of us would recognize the name King Uzziah, right? 
And he's the king that's mentioned in, in Isaiah's great throne room vision of Isaiah chapter 6. That, that great vision where it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That, that great vision. Well, it's interesting that King Uzziah died in disgrace because he defied God's law by acting as a priest. Now, I don't have time to read it, but you can read 2 Chronicles chapter 26. If you want to jot that down, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verses 16 to 21, you can read about it. And so because the king defied God's law by also acting as a priest, he was struck with leprosy and cut off from his people. And so, there was a divinely, a, a divinely designed divide between king and priest in Israel. Melchizedek, however, was king and priest, distinct from all others, in a class all his own. Just how great was this kingly high priest? Well, in Genesis 14, we're given a record of an interaction between Melchizedek and Abraham. And in this account, we read that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Now remember, Abraham was the father of the Jewish people and the head of the Old Covenant. But in Genesis 14, Melchizedek is the one performing the blessing, which is elevating him as, as the greater of the two figures. It's in this passage that Abraham gives him a tenth of, of everything he has. And then, what's more, is that Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, was also from outside of the tribe of Israel. You see, God established the priesthood through the male heirs of one of the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi. And so, as commentators point out, the particularity and the preservation of the line of Levi was paramount to Israelite society for as the mediators between Israel and God, the Levitical priests represented the people before God. And so one person writing about this king priest, Melchizedek, notes that Melchizedek enters into the Genesis story as if he has no mother, no father, no sons. This kind of priesthood stands in stark contrast to the priesthood of Israel, which was entirely based on, on Levitical family descent. His priesthood has nothing to do with ancestry or descent. So, so what does all of this mean? What, what does all this mean? Melchizedek was a priest by sovereign appointment of God. He was unprecedented. He was, his, his was a superior priesthood, since Levitical priests descended from Abraham and Melchizedek surpasses Abraham. The priesthood of Melchizedek must be superior to the Levitical priesthood. I mean, he can bless Abraham when Abraham appears to be the most blessed human being on the planet. What's the point? The writer is using Melchizedek to strengthen his argument that the Levitical priesthood was always meant to give way to something greater, to someone greater. And though it's tough for us, I know, as modern 
non-Jewish readers to make our way through this dense text. The point being made, the point being made is that Jesus, a priest like that of Melchizedek, is greater. He's better. The sovereign plan of God to accomplish what the Levitical priesthood could never do. Save us to the uttermost. Mediate a perfect standing between us and God. Once and for all. The Jewish priesthood with its system of animal sacrifices was crying out for fulfillment. And God answered that cry by giving us His Son, Jesus. The Levitical priesthood was temporary. Jesus, our great high priest, is permanent. The Levitical priesthood had a succession of priests. Jesus is the fulfillment and final priest. The Levitical priesthood could only offer temporary cleansing. Jesus saves to the uttermost. The Levitical priests had to offer sacrifices for their own sin first. Jesus, our great high priest, knew no sin. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God. This is where our text is leading us. That unlike the priests of the Old Covenant, Jesus, Jesus stands above and beyond. Eternal, the risen and conquering Savior and Lord, who our text says is holy and innocent and unstained and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And because of who He is, He can save us to the uttermost. He can save us to the farthest reach. His salvation is complete and eternal. And what's more is that Jesus as our high priest and ever-living Savior is praying for us right now. If there was anything that would give us confidence that we will never perish and that all things will work for our good and His glory, it's the fact that Jesus is making intercession for us right now. In this moment. What a Savior. What a Savior. What a high priest. Well, I'm, I'm glad for verse 1 of chapter 8. And you should be also. Because this verse asks a question that may be on some of your minds. What's the point? What's the point? What is the point of all this? Look at it in, in your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. He actually writes it that way and says, Now, the point in what we are saying is this. You see, I, I was reading these chapters several weeks ago, and you know, you're, you're working through these early chapters in Hebrews and, and um, you know, some dense material and talking about how Jesus is greater than Moses and talking about the 
comparing the, 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 the priesthood, and then you talk about Melchizedek, and talking about the warnings of apostasy, and then it comes back again to, you know, the priesthood in Jesus, and, and then it seems like the writer is recognizing, you know, I, I should just insert here, uh, you know, something to get everyone back on track. Watch the point. The point, the point in what we are saying, he says in verse 1, is this. We have such a high priest. That, that we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And so the writer, you see, the writer has told his readers and us, as we read it now, what we need. He's told us what kind of high priest we need. He's detailed, you know, what kind of high priest we really need. And the main point he's making to his original readers and to us, he's saying is, look, guys, we have a high priest like this. We need Jesus as our great high priest. And the point of all that the writer has written, the flow and the thinking and the content of everything that he has written to this point, the point is this. We have him. We have him. We have Jesus. Jesus, the great high priest who saves to the uttermost, who forgives us our sins once and for all, who understands us like no one else, who is seated at the right hand of God praying for us, this Jesus who is making all things new and is coming back to rule and reign... We have him. We have him by God's grace. We have Jesus. No more searching. No more striving. No more being alone. Listen, friends, no more guilt. No more condemnation. Why? We have and I believe that one of the main purposes of, of a passage like this is to really ground our lives in gospel assurance. A vision of Jesus as our great kingly high priest really deepens our assurance of salvation. And we don't have time to go to other scriptures in, in Hebrews today, but, but, but I want us to understand that gospel assurance that the assurance of our salvation, that we are eternally secure in Him, makes all the difference in our lives, in our relationships, and in our churches. It is this sweet gospel assurance that arises from a vision of Jesus as our great high priest that enables us not to live in fear that our lives somehow hang in the balance of whether or not we make a wrong move. We have him. We have Jesus as our great mediator and savior, which teaches you and I that our identity is anchored in Jesus' work, not yours. His strength, not yours. His performance, not yours. His goodness, not yours. And thank God that because of the finished work of our great high priest, that though there may be times when you feel like you think you're losing your grip on God, thank God, friends, he never loses his grip on you and me. Thank God for that. 
It's our faith in the finished work of Jesus and the resulting assurance of salvation that produces in us and in our churches, I believe, abounding fruitfulness. Our greatest need, friends, is to get the gospel right. For it is on this matter that a lack of fruitfulness can be traced. A deepening and well-grounded assurance of Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice produces abounding fruitfulness. In fact, it leads to a very serious condition that I hope most of you have today, an enlarged heart. I trust you have that today. An enlarged heart that has become enlarged because of the assurance of your salvation. You know, as I, as I close this morning, I, I want you to understand that this, this little, this letter was, um, this letter was written to encourage and instruct a small group of scared, insecure Christians. And certainly, certainly this little church was asking some tough questions about God. And, and so you can imagine that, that this letter arrives, right? Not by email, but, but it arrives. And um, this small congregation, if you can picture this, you know, gathers to hear it read. And through this letter, this beleaguered church is brought face-to-face with the God who speaks. And through this letter, they're brought face-to-face with the gospel of grace. And through an unparalleled picture of Christ's once and for all sacrifice, they find comfort and they find assurance, which in turn gives them fresh power and energy to live. And I pray and have prayed that God, by His Spirit, will do this work in us as well that we will, be, we will receive new power to live this week by the simple and life-changing assurance that we have Him, that we have Jesus. And so I, I was reading, I was reading this, this text some, some weeks ago, and, and uh, you know, like, like many of you here this morning, uh, have experienced difficult seasons. And I'm sure in a congregation like this this morning, there are people here today who have come to this place of worship and you've entered this church, perhaps bringing with you, and you're in a difficult season, a tough time. And, and this, this past number of years, and especially this past year for me and my family, have been uh, especially difficult, very challenging. And, and we still continue to work out some of the residue and things that, that come from that. And so several weeks ago, I'm, I'm, I'm reading this passage, and, and, and uh, I'm following, a, there's, there's a Bible reading plan called uh, the Discipleship Journal Reading Plan. If you're ever looking for a, a good reading plan, uh, that, you can jot that down. It's called the Discipleship Reading Plan. The, the Discipleship Journal Reading Plan. And it's a really good plan because it brings you every day to four separate places in the Bible. And uh, there's some rest days built in in case you get behind like me. But it's a, it's a great plan. So I'm, I'm, reading, I'm reading through uh, some readings early one morning. And I'm reading through these early chapters of, of Hebrews. And, and, uh, and out of nowhere, to be honest, God... 
just as a, by His grace and as a work of His Spirit, just seemed to minister to my life in such a profound way with just an increased awareness of this very simple truth. As I was, as I, as I was reading through these early chapters and, you know, I mean, I'm reading about Melchizedek and, you know, it wasn't all that exciting. And I'm reading through this and comparing the priesthood and, I, you know, I'm reading through it and, and then I come to the end of chapter 7 and, and you know, I, I'm starting to get this picture of, oh, I'm, I'm starting to get the comparison here and I'm, I'm, starting, to, I'm starting to realize what, he, what the writer is trying to, to say here. How he's pointing us to, to something and someone who's just so far superior and how it's such a treasure to, 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 do, to know Jesus. And then as I, I'm reading through all this and I come to verse 1 of chapter 8 and I'm just arrested and I can't read anymore as these words just jump out to me as I'm reading now, the point in what we are saying is we have such a high priest. And friends, in that moment, for me, nothing else really mattered. Just those three words. I have him. And that was enough. And friends, in a way that I don't understand and can't explain because it's a work of the Spirit, that simple yet profound reality was enough. And I stand before you this morning praying that for those of you who are here today who perhaps may be in a difficult season, I pray that the Spirit applies His Word to your heart and mind so that in the midst of whatever else you are going through, you are encouraged by the simple truth that you have Him that you know Him, and that's, that's enough. Because life is tough. And most times what we need is not another pep talk. We don't need to be told to pull up our bootstraps. Our greatest need is not some more self-help advice or a list of steps to follow. There are times when what we need is to take a long gaze at our Savior, our great high priest. What we need is to gaze into the beauty of Jesus and through His Word and by God's grace and the work of, Spirit, of the Spirit find that that is enough. And today I invite you to rejoice, to be glad, and to rest in the reality that Jesus is enough. He's enough for you and rest in that fact this week. Would you bow with me for prayer? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the assurance of our salvation. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that in a way that only you can do, that you will apply to the hearts of your people here today this very powerful reality that we are yours, that we have such a high priest. We have you. And Lord, I pray that for these hearers today, that will be 
enough. Lord, we give you all the glory and all the praise in Jesus' name.